All right, good morning, Crossway. Uh, it's always a privilege to be able to share God's word with you guys. Um, I usually like to start off by sharing uh, a short story uh, and then setting that scene uh, for what we see in the context of Hosea. And today, and I was thinking about when I was in high school, uh, one of the cool things to do in high school was to smoke, right? Everyone smoked, and there was a lot of peer pressure to smoke. And I distinctly remember, like, if there was any moment where I was close to smoking and if I, if I ever, uh, was ever tempted to smoke, there was this commercial that came on that it just died right there, right? And this is the commercial. I had my first cigarette when I was 13. When I found out how bad it was, I tried to quit. But I couldn't. They say nicotine isn't addictive. How can they say that? Pretty traumatizing. Uh, in an effort to wake people up uh, to the dangers of smoking in 96, uh, the health department used this campaign strategy known as shock advertising or shockvertising, uh, which was a type of advertising that startles or offends people by uh, violating norms and social values and personal ideals. And so for the health department, it was crucial for them to shock people and, and for them to wake people up because in that time, you know, culturally, it was just okay to smoke. Everyone did it. It was a cultural norm, right? No one saw it as, oh, that's really bad. I mean, it was unhealthy, but it wasn't that bad, right? So the health department thought, well, okay, we need to shock these people to show them the dangers, the true dangers of smoking. And so this is their way of shocking people into quitting smoking. And I remember watching that, and I was like, okay, yeah, I, I would never do this. And I share this because I think this sets the setting, surprisingly, uh, well for us as we come into the book of Hosea. Because God needs a shock advertisement for Israel, okay? During this time, Israel, for the most part, is doing pretty well. It's prospering materially. It is safe. There's no imminent threats or dangers from enemies around. And so they're actually doing okay. But underneath that, there was uh, a spiritual corruption and immorality, uh, a, a, a turning away from God that underlied all of this on the surface. Along with their worship of Yahweh, they began to worship other idols, sacrificing to Baal, as we saw up here, uh, who was the weather god of that area of Syria, Palestine, uh, Palestine. And they began to turn away from the Lord, forgetting the Lord, because they thought, oh, Baal was the one that's going to provide for us. He is the God of agriculture and fertility and the weather and the storm. And he's the one that provides for us. And they began to turn away. And so Israel at that time, they were in a stupor. They were in a daze. They just thought, you know, for all the sins that we're committing, nothing is really horribly happening to us. You know, we're relatively living in prosperity and we're safe. And they were just in this apathetic scene. And when I think about it, it's kind of like, you know, what the stereotype of a typical OC, you know, person would be, right? Someone who is, you know, materially doing okay, you know, they, they have a place to live. Uh, you know, obviously, oh, I wish my house was bigger, but we have a place to live. We're never going to go hungry. 
And, you know, for the most part, everything is going well. We're pretty comfortable. You might call it the SP, or a serial Palestinian bubble, right? And without an imminent threat or danger or without an urgent need, there was a sense where they just fell into that daze, that comfort. And they just thought, eh, we don't really need anything. And they start seeking out other pleasures, other ideals, or other desires. And sometimes they would go contrary to God. And so we see these people, these Israelites who are God's people turning away from the Lord. And they're in this daze. They're just in this super where, stupor where they're just, they don't see a need to change. And so God needs something. God needs to speak to them, to, to shock them, to bring, oh, to bring this to attention. Did I blow something out or something? To, to bring this to attention, that they are spiritually in need. He needs a shock advertisement. And so I want us to see these are the words that he uses to grab Israel's attention. In the midst of their days and in, in the midst of their apathy, in the midst of just, oh, we don't really need anything. This, these are the words that he speaks. And it's in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2 to 3. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is shock advertisement at its finest. God is grabbing the attention of the Israelites by defiling one of the most sacred and one of the most intimate relationships in human uh, personal relationships. God is shocking the Israelites and calling Hosea to marry someone who has been with other men, has defiled herself, and also knowing that she will later on in the future uh, defile herself by pursuing other men and having children with other men. She will dishonor one of the most holy and personal covenants one can make with one another. And so you can imagine the Israelites, as they see this, how uncomfortable, even for us, how uncomfortable that might make us feel. And for them, even how offended they might be. I mean, imagine Hosea and uh, Gomer walking around, and they're about to get married, and the Israelites are just like, what is he doing? He is a prophet of God. He is holy. I can't believe he's marrying this woman who's defiled herself. What is going on here? And they were appalled. And as they get married, and as she runs away, you can imagine the people gossiping and saying, I knew that was going to happen. I told you, what a mess. This looks so bad on our people. I can't believe what's going on. And they were appalled. They were offended. They were ashamed. And I think this is what God was after. Because the more they were ashamed, the more they were offended, the more they were uh, uh, disgusted by what was going on, it had a greater effect when God would turn to Israel and say, Israel, you are the whore. You are the one who has turned away from me. Hosea 1-2, again, he says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and, take, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. He says, Why are you outraged? Hosea, or Israel, why are you outraged by this defiled relationship relationship by this broken covenant because you are doing the same thing 
with me, your husband. And this was chakratizement at its finest. You know, it's interesting that God uses marriage to symbolize his relationship with Israel and even with us. Um, and I think he does this because he wants to show that his relationship with us is not merely a contract. It's not merely a transaction of, I'm going to be your God, you be my, my people, and you do this, and I do this, and that's it, right? I think there's something deeper that he's after. You see, I think he uses this marriage relationship to show that it's not just a contract that was broken, that, hey, you know, we decided to meet on this day, but you broke your covenant, or you said you, you promised to bring milk home, but you didn't bring milk home, you know, and this promise was broken. I think it's deeper than that. I think he's talking, about, the reason why he uses a marriage relationship is because a relationship was broken. A love contract, a love covenant was broken. The love here between God and Israel was severed. Right? It's not just this contract that was broken, but this relationship that was severed. And I think that's why he uses this. And, he, and as we go through this, I want us to see the emotion that we see from God as this relationship is broken. And I think Hosea does this on purpose because the majority of Hosea's uh, book is written in poetry. And if you know anything about poetry, the goal of poetry is not necessarily just to give information, right? But it's to elicit emotion. It's for us to understand and feel what God is feeling as this covenant is being broken. And so we'll come back to this husband and wife relationship. But one other relationship that I want us to look at, and the reason why I think he uses human relationships is because for us as people, that's the thing that we can relate to the most. And so when he uses human relationships, man, we understand the heart of God a little bit better. And so what we see in this next passage in Hosea chapter 11 is a father-son relationship, a parent-child relationship. And we see the heart of God as he loves his child. And look at the emotion that's going on as he's saying this, right? This is all written in poetry. And although we, as we read it in the text, we won't get the full uh, effect of it, you know, in, in Hebrew we will be able to see it. But this is what it says in verse 1 through 4. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the balls and burning idol, offering to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases a yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Man, how personal is this? God is saying, Ephraim or Israel, you were my child. You are my child. I taught you how to walk. And he says, I held you by the hands as I taught you how to walk. I healed you when you were broken. I didn't force you to do things, but instead I led you with kindness and with love. I know there were times when you might have felt burdened, but I didn't want you to feel burdened in your life, so I took all of that burden for you so that you would walk and live in this life with ease. Now, as parents, you might understand that heart that you have for your child. And you might remember those moments when you led your child and taught him how to walk, taught them to speak, and you bent down, like it, Scripture says, and you fed them. These are the emotions that God is eliciting 
at this time as he's sharing this. And yet, verse 2 says that as much as they called, the more they were called, the more they went away. The more you want Israel to come close to you, God says, they go further and further away. And I think parents, they can relate to that maybe if you're in your teenage years. The more you search after them, the more they turn away. You know, I remember, this is a sad story that I'm ashamed of. But when I was uh, in second grade, I, you know, we just immigrated from Korea a few years ago. And I loved basketball. I think I shared before, my mom used to play professional basketball in Korea. And so ever since then, I just loved basketball. I just, I've, everything about it. And so second grade came around, and I was like, to my parents, I was like, I want to join NJB. NJB is kind of like the uh, club league, club rec league, what they have here today. Uh, but I wanted to join NJB. So I begged my parents, begged my parents, and finally they said, okay, let's go. So we went to the sign-ups. And I remember I was so excited. I, got, I get there, and then they were doing the sign-ups. And then on one of the papers, I distinctly remember it said, you know, fill in your health insurance information. And my parents were like, well, we don't have health insurance. And I was like, what do you mean we don't have health insurance? What, what, what can we do? And they're like, oh, we're sorry, he can't play because he doesn't have health insurance. And, you know, my parents at that time, we didn't have the resources, nor did we know how to gather the resources to get health insurance. So I remember just being so disappointed coming home. And, you know, so that time passed. And throughout you know, college, through, from that moment, you know, I, of course I continued to pursue basketball. I love basketball. And every time I would play with my friends or I'd play with school and every time I would do well, I would come home and I would say this. I would say, Mom and Dad, you know, I played really well in basketball today. You know, I, did, I made this shot or I did this turnaround. I did a crossover or whatever. And they'd be like, oh, great job. And I, and I would say this. Oh, so bad. If I had just been a part of NJB in second grade, I put it even better. And I must have said this until college maybe a hundred times. And every time, you know, I would say it over and over and over again. Until college, uh, my senior year, we were at a retreat, a church retreat. And at the church retreat, uh, you, know, you know, the last night we're all praying and things like that. And it gets really emotional. But my wife would tell you, I'm a robot. I don't cry. I don't get emotional. You know, so I was praying. But one by one, all the kids would go into this dark room, and they would come out, and they'd be bawling. I just thought, that's really weird. You know, why are they going in there and crying? What, what could possibly, and I was just kind of, like, curious. I was like, I wonder if I go in there, if I would cry. Like, I don't know. So I go. It's my turn, finally. I go inside, and it's my parents. My parents are there. And I was thinking, what are they doing here? Like, why did you come all the way up here? You know, I'm already thinking, like, what a waste of time. And then they say, you know, take your shoes off. We want to wash your feet. And I was like, whoa, this is really weird. We've never had this type of affection before. And so they're washing my feet. And the whole time I'm just like, why are people crying, right? And the first thing that they say to me, and they're about to cry, and they say, Paul, we're sorry that in second grade that we weren't able to allow you to join NJB to play basketball. And I remember they were crying. And at that moment I was just like, oh, my gosh, I am the worst son, right? And I started bawling because I started thinking about my parents and how broken they were every time I had said that to them. How much their heart hurt when I kept poking and prodding them saying, well, you didn't give me this. And only if you gave me this, my life would have been better. 
And I thought, oh, my gosh, I am the worst son. And, you know, hopefully, you know, it's some, something resonates with you guys because this story, you know, always makes me pretty sad. But I think this is where we're coming to where it says that God is broken, you know, because Israel, they had everything. God was providing everything, and they would just complain. Oh, well, you didn't give me this. Oh, well, you didn't give me that. And you can imagine the father, the parent, being broken by the son who's just complaining, who's forgetting what he has been given. Chapter 11, verse 3, it says, and he did not know that he was the one that healed him. What a punk kid, right? He doesn't even remember or realize that everything in his life has been given to him by his parents. I mean, maybe it was good that I joined NJB. I wasn't going to go to the NBA, right? Maybe they steered me the right way, and yet I felt like this is what I needed. And God's heart was broken. The father's heart was broken. And he's saying, Israel, this is you. You're living immorally, selfishly, forgetting God, and you're complaining when things don't work out. And God, you know, he has every right to vanquish us, to destroy us, to demolish us, right, to treat us like Sodom and Gomorrah, to rain sulfur and ashes and to kill us because we turned away from God. That's what we deserve. He has every right to do that. But that's not what a father does. Look at verse 8, chapter 11. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel, to destruction? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? These later two cities are cities that were destroyed with Sodom and Gomorrah when, they, uh, when God had punished them. And he says, you deserve destruction, but you're my son. How can I give you up? No matter how much you turn away, how could I possibly give up my son whom I love? How can I treat you like someone else's son? Because you're my son. You've turned away, but you're still my son. And you see the turmoil in his heart because he knows that sin deserves judgment. And he wants his justice. He has to punish. But this is his son. And look at the emotions in the second part, verse 8 through 9. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You see these emotions that are going on. God, in his burning anger, he wants to punish things that are unjust, things that are unholy, things that are marred by sin, because he is holy and, and sinless. But so you see him transitioning from his anger, his turmoil where he's struggling with what he's going through. He says, my heart recoils within me. It's going back and forth. And then he says, my compassion grows warm and tender. He remembers, this is my son. I love him. I will not execute my burning anger. And so we see in history what happens is that he disciplines them. He takes away the resources and the wealth and things away so that they would turn back to him. Because they would realize, man, we're not protected. We're in danger. We don't have the resources anymore. We're in need. And they would turn back to him. So he disciplines them for a moment. We know this in history because they make an alliance with Egypt. And the great uh, Assyrian Empire comes and destroys them. And they're left with nothing except to turn back to God. 
But in the midst of that, God says, I will offer hope. In the midst of this destruction, for that limited time, I will offer you hope. And we go back to this husband-wife relationship. And this is so intimate. I want us to see the emotion that is being shared about God's love and this love covenant. Remember, it's not just a transaction. It's not just God up in the air looking down on us saying, you did this or you're going to get punished or you did that so you're going to get blessed. It's not a transactional covenant, but it's a love covenant. And so I want you to see how God says this new covenant is going to be new. It's going to be different. It's a love covenant. In verse 14 through 18, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Accor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, the creeping things of the ground. I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. Look at the language at what God uses. He says, I will allure her. I will date her. I will entice her. I will prove to her how much I love her again so that she understands how much I love her. I like verse 15, it says, she shall answer as in the days of her youth. What that means is I'm going to remind her of the honeymoon stage that we once had. You remember the honeymoon stage when you're dating and all you can think of is how much I love this person and how much I want to see this person again? And when you're apart, you're just like, oh, my gosh, I need to call this person. I want to come back to this honeymoon stage when you remembered how much you loved me and all you remembered is my name, my husband. And you forgot every other name, my ball. They weren't even objects of consideration for you because you were so in love with me. This is what I want to bring us back to, a covenant of love. What he's sharing once again is a declaration that God, it's not just about this transaction, but God wants his bride back. God wants his son back. And he doesn't want just a loveless marriage or just a one-sided relationship. He doesn't want a relationship where you just serve and he just gives and it's just very robotic. He desires a bride who desires a groom just as much as the groom desires a bride. He desires a, a son that pursues his father just as much as the father pursues the son. He wants a mutual relationship. You know, I think this is so important because I think living in our culture in our day, you know, as we come to church, as we read the Bible, it's sometimes really easy to get into the habit of things. Or we come to church because that's the thing to do on Sundays. Or uh, we should read the Bible because that's what Christians do. Or, you know, we should be honest because that's how we're supposed to act. Or we try to live a certain way so that God doesn't punish us, right? Or maybe God will give us good things. And so we sometimes base our lives on those things. But if 
that's how we think of our relationship with God. We're missing the point because God wants us to be in the word. God wants us to come to church. God wants us to serve because we love him. It's the love relationship that he's after. He wants to be the desirable husband. He wants to be the perfect father that you desire to pursue. And, you know, honestly, I'll close with this. We cannot do it ourselves. We will fail every day if we try to pursue this on our own. Because we sin. Because we're filled with sin. We're corrupted by sin. And without a blameless and pure heart, we cannot pursue God. But because of God's grace, because of his love for us, he has given us Jesus Christ. Because Christ died for us, because he's taken our sins away, we have died with our sins. And because Christ has risen, we have now risen, and we've been given a new heart to love God. In Ezekiel eleven nineteen, 19, it says, I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. And he's done this for us through the work of Christ. The craziest thing that I, I think is in this story, we see God's heart, how much he loves his son Israel. And his heart is so longing for them. And yet, at the same time, he was burning in his anger and his wrath because of their sin. And yet, all of that wrath, all that burning anger, he placed on his one and only son, his true son, whom he loved. And he placed it on Jesus so that we can have this same love relationship that he and Christ had. And so that is my prayer for us, that we would pursue that love relationship. That Christianity and church would not just be a series of things that we go through in motion. But Hosea teaches us, God desires a love relationship, but we pursue him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. Not just that you've saved us, but that you love us. And because you love us, You've sent your son, Jesus Christ. He's died for our sins so that we might have this new heart, this new life, that we can pursue you now as we've risen with Christ. And we want to be a people now that are motivated by love, who serve you, who seek you, who uh, go to church, and all these things because we want to pursue this relationship as a son, as a daughter, as a wife, a spouse that genuinely just wants to love Lord. May that be the, the, the culture of our church and our lives, God. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray.